Did I already say good morning? I don't think I did. So, good morning, Northbrook. It's good to see you here this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews 11, we're going to read a couple of verses in Hebrews 11 this morning, and then we're going to um, go back to Joshua 2. So if you're an overachiever, you will find Hebrews 11, and I know you'll start looking for Joshua 2, because that's what overachievers do. If you're not, that's fine. We'll start in Hebrews 11, and we'll go back to Joshua 2 together. But let's just read together this morning. I must not be an overachiever because I wasn't even in Hebrews 11. Let's read together verses 29 to 31. Hebrews 11, 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Before we get into our sermon, there was something I meant to put in the sermon that I didn't, but these three statements here, by faith, the Red Sea, you stand back and say, what an amazing thing. By faith, the walls of Jericho, and you stand back and it's just an amazing thing to comprehend. And that's connected to, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, and never lose sight of the amazing work of God and his power to save human beings. I don't think that should be lost on us, but that's a different sermon than this morning. But I just had to say that. In March of 2003, how many of you were alive in March of 2003? I'm just curious. Yeah, that's what I kind of thought, that there'd be enough that weren't. But in March of 2003, do you guys know what happened? Anybody want to take a stab at what happened in March of 2003? It's a big deal. See how these big events of life just kind of fade into the distance and we forget them. In March of 2003, an international coalition of military forces began an invasion of the country of Iraq. That was March of 2003. And a key component of that invasion was the use of a new military strategy, a newer military strategy called shock and awe. Remember that? Remember those those terms were floating around in those days and everybody was talking about them? For those of you who are old enough to remember, many of us as Americans were glued to our television sets as we watched those grainy, greenish explosions of light in the darkness over the city of Baghdad. And if you're like me, I sat there, and I can remember saying to my wife and kids, this is just unbelievable. I mean, it was just bomb after bomb after bomb, and it was just a constant lighting up of the night sky as those bombs were going off. They were showing them being launched from the aircraft carriers. Do you remember that? And they were explaining how they worked and everything. And for many who condemned the Iraqi leadership, the display of American military power was talked about in coffee shops and workplaces and schools and even churches. 
Americans were in awe of the missiles launched that night, but that wasn't the point of shock and awe. The point of shock and awe was, was for the Iraqis, for the Iraqi military. They were the intended, intended recipients of that idea of shock and awe. And the strategy defined by its proponents and two of the major ones in 1999 was a tactic based on the use of overwhelming power and spectacular displays of force to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and destroy their will to fight. Lots of big explosions, lots of power, to the point that the enemy would sit back and say, we're not even gonna fight this. this, we can't win this. And I mentioned this today, it came to my mind as I was preparing the sermon for today, because based on the information in the book of Joshua, it would seem one could argue that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the originator of this military doctrine. It wasn't thought up by a bunch of eggheads in the intelligence and military community of the 90s. God was using this long before America even existed. He didn't use guided missiles to achieve his goal, but what he did do left the Canaanites in a state of shock and awe. And I invite you now to go back to Joshua 2, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. And I will show you, as the writer of Joshua does, how God had put things in place so that the inhabitants of Canaan had reached the point that they were paralyzed by their perception of the battlefield and their will to fight had been destroyed. And in the second chapter of Joshua, we actually have the privilege of listening in on a conversation between a Canaanite woman named Rahab and two Israeli spies. As I wrote that, I thought, Israeli spies. Never thought of using that term way back then as you would today, but that's what they were doing. So let's begin in Joshua chapter 2, and I want to read down through verse 21. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. You think a little bit of James Bond here, you know, that little stuff that's going on in the dark, and they're, they're scared and wondering what's going on. Here's Rahab, and she's got this plan, and she gets them up on the roof, she gets them hid sends the king's men off in the wrong direction. 
Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Catch that? I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that Yahweh, when you see Lord there, and if, if you look at that, that's not Adonai, it's not the other names, it's Yahweh. I know that your God Yahweh has given you the land. Gentile prostitute picked up on that. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That's the goal of shock and awe. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Just want to interject here. Not only Rahab, but the people of Canaan had become aware of who Yahweh was. And they knew, they knew that he was the God of heaven and the God of earth. They all knew it. That's what she's saying. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And she asks them to take an oath in the covenant name of Yahweh. That was his covenant name to these people. Take an oath in the name of your covenant God that you will not destroy my family or me. We believe. Remember Miracle on whatever street that was with Santa Claus and believe everywhere. She's, she's putting up a sign in front of these guys of we believe. Don't destroy our family. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. A covenant has just been cut between these people in the name of Yahweh. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of, you, of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood will be on our head. 
But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she went, sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When did Rahab tie the scarlet cord in the window? Immediately. She believed. She didn't want there to be any chance that anybody missed it. Immediately she put the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. More than 40 years have gone by since Moses led God's people out of Egypt. The statements in verse 29 about God parting the Red Sea, there's over a 40-year gap between those statements and the statements or the history of verse 30 and 31. All of the information that has been since verse 29 to get to verse 30 is recorded for us in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That much of the Bible exists in that gap between verse 29 and 30. And now this young nation of Israel, this second generation of those who crossed the sea, is about to enter the land promised to them by God. God has told them, this is your land. This belongs to you. I promised it to you. I apologize for my voice, but behold, our God always gets me singing and destroys my voice. And so now it's, it's shot for the day. But it was great to sing that song, so... Maybe in the future, Scott, you're going to have to keep it for afterwards for my sake, you know, just. But similar to the first generation who walked through the Red Sea, within about a day of this, what we just read, the priests carrying and the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant are going to cross this Jordan in flood stage and the water is going to pile up on one end and all the Israelites are going to walk through on, on dry ground just like their ancestors did as they enter into the land. And at that point, after they cross the Jordan, God's people will be gathered with the Jordan River to their backs facing the city of Jericho, which is a fortress city with massive walls. It is at the southernmost entrance to the promised land. And the only way to conquer the promised land was to conquer Jericho. It would have been a massive military mistake to have bypassed Jericho and go on because you're left with all the armies of Jericho at your back and all the armies of Canaan to your front. They have to go through Jericho. What these people, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, what they did not realize, but it's revealed by Rahab to the spies, what they didn't realize is that God had already been operating his shock and awe campaign. 
He was preparing the inhabitants of land for the arrival of his people. And Rahab, as we read, tells them that word has spread through the land that the God of the Israelites is powerful beyond imagination. That's what she's trying to communicate to them. The people of Canaan know that this Yahweh, who these people follow and serve, the inhabitants of Canaan are aware of his power. Forty years has passed and the story of the Red Sea has gone all through Canaan. And they know that this God has destroyed the, the king and the most powerful army in the world, Egypt. They're gone. They know that the two powerful kings on the other side of the Jordan have been wiped out by these people who are coming because their God is so powerful. And it has such an effect on the Canaanites that Rahab tells them how there is no spirit left in any man because of the Israelites' God. There's a part of me that wonders if they remember the curse of Noah upon his descendants, his descendant Cain. Noah's curse, contrary to what was taught in churches for hundreds of years, was not on Noah's son, and it was not on the people of Africa, which has been taught over and over again. It was a primary teaching that supported slavery. The curse was on the people of Canaan. The curse was on Cain, the son, the descendant, not son, but the descendant of Noah. And now God is bringing that curse to bear. And he intends for his people to wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan. I wonder if that curse has come back to these people's minds because they knew of it. But whatever they remembered, they know now that God is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath and fear is consuming these people and they have become utterly disheartened. I remember when I was in high school and played football, there was a school that we played that had a reputation for being very dirty the way they played. I remember that we were in our gymnasium stretching. We did our stretches not down on the field, but we did them in our gym, which was also where the dressing rooms were for, for home and visitors. And, our, and our, our foyer had an epoxy floor. And we heard the clicking of cleats as they came in to our gymnasium. They already were dressed. And we were hearing the clicking of their cleats and it wasn't the correct sound. And we found out before the game started that they were wearing metal cleats. They weren't wearing the normal plastic ones. This team was wearing metal cleats, which was promptly pointed out to the referees and they made them change all their cleats out. That was a team that would stomp on you on the ground. And they tried to wear those cleats to do more damage. That was the dirtiest team we played on a year to year basis. And they were a Catholic school named Holy Family. <laughs> All that stuff, you know. The dirtiest team that we played year to year. And we feared Holy Family. Not in the sense of a spiritual fear. We feared them in a physical fear. 
And everybody did. Everybody who played them feared them because of how they played. We were disheartened when they showed up to play or we went to their field to play. That was what was happening on a much larger level in Canaan. And they were fearing their lives. They were in a complete state of shock and awe. And yet for all their recognition of the overwhelming power of this God, the inhabitants of Canaan do not offer surrender. They are not going to bow the knee to this God. They are scared out of their minds. Their knees are weak. Their hearts are faint. They know who this God is, and they will not bow the knee to this God. The people of Jericho do not wave a white flag at the top of their walls. Their hearts may have melted in fear, but they are like stone in their opposition to God's purposes. As we move forward in the story, and you would need to go into chapter 5 and chapter 6, but we find that Israel there has crossed the Jordan. They've celebrated the Passover for the first time in their new land. And God meets with Joshua to reveal his military strategy for conquering Jericho. Wouldn't it be cool to be Joshua and to have God come and meet with you and say, okay, this is our war council. Here's here's our military strategy. This is what we're going to do. And I would imagine that Joshua obviously was in a sense of shock and awe himself. But God's now telling him what he's going to do. After, After the commander of God's armies has introduced himself to Joshua, And after he's made it clear to Joshua that he's not for Joshua and he's not for the Canaanites, he's for God, which we need to remember the next time that we have a cause and we try to attach God to our cause and say he's on our side. That's a whole other sermon too that we could talk about. God's commander of his army says, I'm not on either of your side, I'm on God's side. Are you on God's side? And then God talks to Joshua and reveals the military plans and how Jericho is going to come down. And surprisingly, against all the normal methods of conquering a city of that time, it doesn't involve a siege to starve the people into submission, nor does it include a plan to storm the gates. Fire and brimstone, like at Sodom and Gomorrah, will not fall from the sky. Wouldn't that have been an easy way to deal with Jericho. It's in Canaan. Sodom and Gomorrah is in Canaan. Could have been the same strategy. uh, Joshua, you just stand back and I'm going to drop all these firebombs on them and then they're going to be obliterated and you're just going to have to wait until everything cools down and then just go forward. It's ready to go. But God doesn't do that. God's plan that he shares with Joshua is probably the most bizarre military strategy ever used in warfare. And I've got to believe that Joshua, his first response, maybe Joshua's just an amazing person, but if it had been me, my first response would have been, seriously? I mean, inside, I probably wouldn't have said that to God, but seriously, this is your plan? Okay. This is what you're going to do, Joshua. Every day, 
every day for six days. Everyone's going to line up in order. And I can just imagine kindergartners with their rope that they all have to hold on to, you know, to keep them in line. But they're going to line up in this order every day. First in line is going to be the armed men. All that have been readied for military work are going to be in front with their weapons. Next behind them will be priests blowing trumpets. How would you be like to be the last guy in the military line with all those trumpets behind you? He couldn't hear anything but when they finally did do something. But next it's going to be the priests with the trumpets. Behind the priests with the trumpets, next in line, is the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> and then behind them were the rest of the people. Possibly million people all lined up to march around the wall of Jericho. Every day, Joshua, they're going to line up like that. Now, you're Joshua, and just think about lining all these people up, getting them all in place. But every day, you're going to get them all in place, and you're all going to walk around the city. The only noise is going to be the trumpets. There will be no talking in line, children. That's what God says. No talking. No noise. No word of their mouth. On day seven, they were to do this seven times. So every day for six days, walk around the city in this order. On the seventh day, you're going to walk around for seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests begin to blow the trumpets, the people are allowed to shout. And on that day, Joshua, when the people begin to shout and the trumpets are blowing, the walls are going to fall down. And that's exactly what happened. The walls fell in. And the people of God, the army of God, went in and destroyed everything and everyone except one family. And Jericho was conquered. Now, and we've talked about this a lot in the adult immersion group over the last few years. It, it comes up. Someone will say something. As we've gone through the book of Numbers, as we've talked about the life of faith, and we, we all think this way, but someone will bring up how dumb the Israelites were. I mean, they, they come out of Egypt, the sea parts for them so they can walk through. There's this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. God provides them food day to day, every day. He's taking care of them. Their clothes don't wear out. Their shoes don't wear out. They're constantly getting water. God's providing all these things for them. And, and we look at them, and I do the same thing. I'm not criticizing anybody with this, although we, we, it's, there's a reason why we probably shouldn't do this, but we look at them and we go, how dumb could they be that the, the Red Sea is just parted, they're a couple days out in the desert, and there's no water. Why, well, Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Why are we out here without water? Remember that? I mean, how can you, just having seen the Red Sea part and having this pillar of cloud and fire in front of you, be standing around saying, 
Why are we out here? Where's God? Right there. But they're always doing that, and we, we can be pretty hard on them. So now let's just turn that around for a second. While we get on them for their lack of belief and their lack of faith in God, I wonder, I just wonder, how many of us that the leader says, this is the battle plan, guys. Line up, no talking, and we're going to take a hike every day. And on the seventh day, we're going to shout, and it's all going to fall down. How many of us would have said, okay, yeah, I like that plan. That's really great. That makes sense to me. Let's do that. How many of you would have supported Joshua? While we're picking on the Israelites for their stupidity, how many of us would have been saying, I'm in for that. Let's do that. It's great. But these people, by faith, believed. You know, personally, over my 60 years, when I, and my experiences in churches as, as a non-leader in a church, as a deacon in a church, as a lay assistant pastor in a church, as a pastor in a church, over my years of church experience, I read this story and I'm convinced that God's people not talking or complaining as they walked around Jericho's walls might have been the greater miracle of that day. For six days, God's people kept their mouth shut and didn't complain or give their advice on how stupid you are and how things could be done better. That was the real miracle in my mind. We can't even get past keeping our mouths shut, let alone us getting in line and walking around for six days. At any rate, we're told in Hebrews 11 that by faith, all of this happened. Now, as I think about this battle and how bizarre the battle strategy is, and what got accomplished on that day, it reminded me of another war waged on another battlefield one day. And that battle that I was thinking of took place on a hill as an innocent man died on a cross. There was a battle going on that day. And there was a pretty bizarre military strategy, if you will, in place for that battle that day. But that battle that day was not a battle between human armies. And in fact, it seemed very one-sided. What could not be seen by human eyes on that battlefield on that day was that all the forces of the serpent were arrayed to destroy one man, the Son of God. The angel armies of God could watch. And from what we can figure out in the New Testament, it would appear that the angel armies of God did not know the future and did not know the outcome of this battle. There are things about redemption that they did not know and they could not experience. 
But God's angel armies watched. Jesus said, I could call thousands and thousands of angels to my side in a moment's notice, but it's not going to happen. I am going to fight this battle and I am going to die alone on a cross. Not one of those angels was allowed to join the battle. And it would probably have seemed, if we could have seen it, if humans could have watched it, it probably would have seemed that all was lost. But then in the midst of this battle, as it looked like it was about to end, a battered Jesus cried out, it is finished. And that wasn't a cry of despair or despondency or defeat. It was a cry of triumph. And I wonder how the armies of Satan responded to that as they heard, it is finished. If they mocked it or if they knew what it meant. As Jesus breathed for the last time that day, the battle suddenly shifted and a new conqueror was crowned. The serpent slayer promised Eve with a heel pierced by nails stomped on the head of the serpent, dealing him a mortal blow. You talk about a reversal in a battle. As they believe they are about to conquer, suddenly their leader's head is smashed. And he's dying. In that moment, it became clear to all who could see with spiritual eyes that the plan of God in defeating the curse of sin and all the forces of darkness was a brilliant plan. It would have seemed bizarre to be explained as the strategy to defeat Satan. But those who had spiritual eyes believed that there would one day be a serpent slayer who would kill the serpent. And through the eyes of faith, humanity, because of what Jesus accomplished in that battle with that bizarre battle plan, all humanity could find forgiveness in Jesus' blood and be liberated from the power of sin and Satan. And the book of Revelation says of the saints' battle against Satan, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And that overcoming is, is, is indicative of a battle that's taken place. As I thought about this reality, as I thought about God's bizarre plans from the human standpoint, the human understanding, when I think about how God does not accomplish things in the way that we expect him to or the way we think he should. I was once again reminded that far too often I forget who my true enemies in this life really are. And I think it's a fairly common problem for many Christians. In our desire to obey Jesus and follow him, we sometimes experience opposition from unbelievers and there's battles that we see that need to be fought. 
We feel threatened by the exercise of their power to shame and to humiliate and even harm us. But the fact is that these ones that we identify as the enemies around us are just puppets. They're not our true enemies. They're simply advancing the agenda of their spiritual father, who is Satan. And in the midst of the battle that we're engaged in, we have to come to the realization that the battle is actually a spiritual one and that our true enemies are unseen. As the people of Israel prepared for a battle with human beings in Jericho, the real battle was not about Jericho. The real battle was about eradicating the power and presence of Satan from the land of promise. That's what God had told them originally, was they were to drive out the inhabitants. That there was judgment coming upon these inhabitants because of their wickedness. Sodom and Gomorrah was not an anomaly in Canaan. Sodom and Gomorrah was representative of Canaan. Immoral people who worshipped awful gods who sacrificed their children to worship those gods. It was a corrupt place beyond imagination. And God had for many years mercifully not judged them. But the coming of the people of Israel to Canaan was to be a purging, not just so that God's people had a nice place to live, but for God to exercise judgment upon the inhabitants and push back on Satan's strongholds to eradicate his strongholds in the land of Canaan. But it would have been easy for the people of Israel to see the human beings on the other side of that wall as the enemy. They were not the enemies of Israel. They were the enemies of God. They were in rebellion against God. There was one woman of one family who said, we have seen this. Yahweh is God. And the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho said, we have seen this and that God is powerful and his name is Yahweh and we resist him. They were God's enemies. And the people of Israel were there to battle God's enemies. And today, again, we look around us and we see human, pe- human beings who oppose us and say nasty things about us and pressure us. And we begin to see human beings as the enemies. And to some degree, they make themselves our enemies. But God wants us to look past the human beings and understand that there's a spiritual battle going on and these people are just pawns. And they're really the enemies of God. Why do I say that? The Apostle Paul reminds us that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, he says, 
The weapons that we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. When we look at the battle of Jericho, God wants us to see, yes, how powerful he is. He also wants us to see that he fights battles in ways that we never imagined because we don't see where the battle really exists. And we don't understand that it's God's battle and not ours. Do you ever feel like in the midst of the give and take of this life with people who are opposed to God's ways and will, do you ever feel like that the battle exists between you and that person? And the battle is really between that person and God and it's just deflecting out on you because you're aligned with God. And oftentimes we approach those battles with the idea that we have to conquer that person and get them over to our side, our side. Kind of like, are you for us or are you for them? Talking to the commander of God's army. And the commander of God's army says, I'm not for either one of you, I'm for him. That's where the battle, that's where they're battling. It's not you, you're not conquering them to follow you. God's conquering them and he's having you be part of this for his glory and oh, by the way, for their good. A statement by Paul, the New Living Translation puts it this way. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey God. We don't wage war as humans wage war and God doesn't wage war as humans wage war. If we're in it for God, then our approach is going to be different. Our approach is not going to be about winning arguments or conquering people. Our approach is going to be standing with God and praying that the power of God will be active in the life of the person who opposes God and then being the spokesperson for God to give the truth of the gospel in a life that needs the gospel. And because of that, God's war strategy for us is very different. We are not to war against human enemies. How do we war against human enemies? How do we do that? By arguing, by quarreling, by breaking off relationships because they won't agree with us? Maybe, maybe I'm just that type of person and you don't have this problem. But don't we see it as winning an argument a lot of the time? And then writing off the people who don't agree with us. Jesus, on the other hand, had a different approach to how we interact with people. Jesus told us in Matthew 5 that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's just take one big enemy out there. At least was for a long time. 
And I would ask you, did you ever pray that God would save Osama bin Laden's soul? Or did you pray that God would bring justice on him? If we follow Jesus' way, we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. Jesus says again later in Luke 6 that we are to love our enemies and do good to those who hate you. I find that one really hard. As a pastor for almost 20 years, I've been hated by a lot of people, and I mean hated by a lot of people. Hated, hated. Not like Taylor Swift hate, but I mean hated, hated. I find that really hard. I find it hard to be nice to people who hate me. I feel it hard to be nice to people, to do good to people who have slandered me and lied about me behind my back. I have a tendency to avoid those people and hope they don't show up at funerals. Just being honest. I got a long ways to go on loving my enemies and doing good to them. Maybe you do too. He says it again in Luke that we are to love our enemies and do good to them. So three times Jesus said, love your enemies, love your enemies, love your enemies. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12 to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He goes further saying, do not repay anyone evil for evil. He says that we are not to avenge ourselves when wrong, but to leave vengeance with God. And finally, he commands us, the Apostle Paul commands us to feed our hungry enemies and to give thirst, give drink to the thirsty enemy. And in doing so, we overcome evil with good. I'm just going to say that from our human standpoint, that is a bizarre way of interacting with people who seek to hurt us or our reputations or our standing. It's bizarre. Because we don't get anything out of it. And if anything, we better the people who have done that to us. But that's God's plan. That's his strategy of how we are to deal with enemies. And I would say that in today's world, as it's always been, this type of thinking is a bit counterintuitive. It's not my first response. It's not my natural response. Personally, there are a lot of past occasions where this is not how I reacted internally or even externally to those who have made themselves my enemies. And unfortunately, I had to deal with this. Sadly, I had to deal with this at Judy's funeral because there were people who showed up who have slandered me and spread falsehoods about me in the community of Northbrook and in the community outside of Northbrook and I dreaded seeing their face. And I wish 
that I was a person who when I saw them, naturally it would flow out of me that I would bless them. I did not want to see their face, okay? So this isn't just confession time for John. I'm just telling you where I am and wondering where you are. It's great to see when God does shock and awe in people's lives. It's great to see justice rain down from God. It's not so great when we have to adopt God's bizarre plans in relation to his enemies and the people who make us their enemies. And in the midst of the battle, we have to remember that by the gracious work of God in the hearts of some, in the hearts of some, Rahab's come by faith to know him. If we take God's enemies and we become belligerent warriors against the enemies of God, how are the Rahabs ever going to hear the truth? Sure, Rahab could recognize and Rahab could even have a heart for God because he softened her heart. But there's a statement here that I find interesting that when Rahab is rescued, she's put outside the camp. If you read chapter 6, you'll find that. Now later, she becomes part of the community, but the initial reaction is to keep Rahab out there, outside the camp, a Gentile. Rahab and her family is kept excluded outside the camp. You know where Rahab ends up, ends up in the long term, though? She's mentioned in the line of Boaz. She's mentioned in the line of Jesse. She's mentioned in the line of David. She's mentioned in the line of Jesus. In the genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels, she's Rahab the prostitute in the line of Jesus. And I just wonder, sometimes God's sovereign and he overrules our stupidity. But how do we affect the Rahabs of this world by keeping them at arm's distance and keeping them away from us because of what they've done? And what God wants us to see is that in the midst of those enemies of his, he's pulling out Rahab's fringe people that no one thinks have any right to God because of their lifestyles that are castaways in culture. Rahab the prostitute. And he's for his glory in bizarre ways taking these castaways and holding them up as trophies of grace and showing what he can do because of his love and mercy. And how would it change our thinking if we began to see the enemies of God that we view as the enemies of us, what if we began to see them as Rahab's? 
not Rahab's the prostitute, but Rahab's the prostitutes who will be saved by grace. Would that change our hearts and our attitudes towards the people around us that we see as enemies? Would it be easier to do good if we began to see people possibly the way God might see them? Not all are ever going to come to know him. But, you know, I've had people say to me, you're a Calvinist. How do you know who the elect are and who the elect are not? And my response is, I don't care. I'm not looking for ease on people's heads. The gospel goes to every person. It's up to God to do what he wants to do with them. On the flip side, we don't know who the Rahabs are. And we have a responsibility to take the gospel to those people. But we will never do it if we follow human strategies of war in spiritual conflict. And all we do is talk bad about them. Somebody blows up with their latest critical race theory or Black Lives Matters or Black Panthers and I can go back to no prayer in schools. And we blow up and we get away from them and we condemn them and we pray for God's justice on them. And God's saying, stop it. Now you know who the ones are who need me. Love them. Do good to them. That's my strategy. Because I'm going to save some of them. You want to be a part of that or not? All this reminds me of a poem by William Cooper, a friend of John Newton. He wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, and his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I would encourage you this morning to rest in God's plan and promises for your life, Understanding that one of his plans and promises for your life is to love those who persecute you and to wage war on his behalf in the way that he's called you to do it, and that is to go out with the gospel. Not with weapons of human minds and human ways, but understanding that there's a spiritual battle taking place. Remember, never forget that we are engaged in a war that can only be seen in, through the eyes of faith. And ask him then, our Father, to use his word in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform you into the image of his Son who called us to love our enemies and to do good. To do good to do good. And in doing so, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us and died for us. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would, through your grace, understand that the way you go to war is not in the way that we would think of going to war. That you have not called us as your soldiers, but you have called us as your children. And yes, you have given us imagery in your word of what it means to fight but the weapons that we go out with are not like the weapons of this world. We are to go out in righteousness and truth with the sword of your word and our feet shod with the, prep, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Help us to understand what it means that the blessed are the peacemakers. Help us to understand what it means to love our enemies. Help us to understand what it means to pray for those who persecute us and despitefully use us. Help us to understand what it means to be a member of your army seeking disciples for your glory and their good. Help us to understand how to live in a way that we leave vengeance for you, knowing that there is a day coming when the King will lead all the army, angel armies of heaven to destroy your enemies. And until that day, help us to be faithful to share the gospel to go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. In your Son's name, amen.